This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Recognize the possibilities of nuclear war in the missile age without our citizens knowing what they should do and where they should go if bombs begin to fall would be a failure of responsibility. And that, of course, is President John F. Kennedy speaking on July 25, 1961, during the Berlin Crisis. One of the various moments in the Cold War where we came very, very close to engaging in actual war with the Soviets. Tomorrow, I am requesting of the Congress new funds for the following immediate objectives. To identify and mark space in existing structures, public and private, that could be used for fallout shelters in case of attack stock those shelters with food, water, first aid kits, and other minimum essentials for our survival. Basically, what Kennedy is saying here is it's a real possibility that bombs are going to start falling, and we need to figure out where you can all go to take shelter if they do. That's producer Katie Mingle. And after Kennedy made this horrifying speech, as you can imagine, the phones started ringing. Immediately, the Kennedy administration was besieged by people wanting more information on uh, fallout shelters. I'm Kenneth D. Rose. I wrote One Nation Underground, the fallout shelter in American culture. You know, businesses that had previously been making swimming pools uh, now declared themselves to be experts at building shelters. There were door-to-door bomb shelter salesmen, shelter displays at malls and county fairs. But by the time Kennedy made that 1961 speech, there was one place that had already broken ground on a unique shelter. Artesia, New Mexico, population 11,000, is about 40 miles south of Roswell in the southern part of the state near Texas. And in 1962, they opened a brand new elementary school, completely underground, equipped with a morgue, decontamination showers, and a stockpile of food and medicine. Because this school, it was built to double as the town's nuclear fallout shelter. This was a um, pilot program with the idea of protecting school children and also members of the local community in case there was a a nuclear attack. During an attack, the school was uh, supposedly would shelter its own students and those from other schools or the first 2,100 people to show up and those who arrived late at the school would find their entry blocked by 1,800-pound steel doors. Search our mega inventory online at tapebranch.com. And it is 8.21, and uh, joining us in the studio this morning is Katie Mingle. She's uh, from Oakland, California, and uh, good morning. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, okay, first off, I guess... Wait, what is going on? All right, let me explain. I went to Artesia, and because small towns are amazing, they invited me to come on their local radio station, KSVP, and put a call out for people who had gone to Abo Elementary School as kids. Good deal. So if anybody is uh, has information or stories they want to share about Abo Elementary, be it a student there or administrator or maybe you worked on it, whatever, uh, give Katie a call. Once again, her phone number is there. So did people actually call you? Yeah, they did. And we'll meet one of them later. But first, let's go look at the school. Abo is tucked away in a quiet little neighborhood, not too far away from the center of town. You could easily miss it driving by since it's mostly underground. But there is a sign out front, and you have to squint to make it out, but it says, Abo Elementary School, 
and Fallout Shelter. And that's, of course, the original on there. That's Scott Simer. My name is Scott Simer, and I'm currently the director of maintenance for the public schools, for Artesia Public Schools. I met Scott and Thad Phipps, the current assistant superintendent of Artesia Schools, on the roof of ABO. The school is closed now, but kids still went to school there until 1995. The roof of Abo School is a concrete blacktop at ground level with basketball hoops and three covered stairways that go down underground and into the school. Like if you're in first grade, you went down this, this set of doors. If you're in second and third, you would come over here. And then fourth and fifth graders would line up at this one. And you kinda... One mother described the scene of kids entering the building as looking like ants lining up to go into their anthill. Scott and Thad actually both went to school at Abo in the late 70s, early 80s. And they said that even though the sign out front says fallout shelter, and even though their school was entirely underground, they never really knew what that meant. I never knew growing up that it was a built as a bomb shelter. It was just a school to me as a kid, you know. And then once you get older and you 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 know you hear stories and oh, they used to have a morgue down here. And, you know. Habo Elementary was designed by an architect and civil defense enthusiast named Frank Standhart. After he built Abo School, he went on to design an underground shopping mall slash bomb shelter that was never actually built. Look over here. There's a. Uh, this is our shower room. Gets the uh, contaminants off of you before you come into the rest of the people underground. <laughs> the decontamination showers at each entrance were easy to miss, as were the blast doors, which were swung up against a wall and not used during normal school days. You know, solid steel door. Um, you can close it, and wow. it has uh, three, four different uh, latches to latch it so nobody can get in or out. Um, and never knew that this door existed till I started working here. And so We go down a couple flights of stairs into the main hallway of the school. And basically, it just looks like a school. I mean, it's windowless and kind of drab since it hasn't been used in almost 20 years. But otherwise, it looks a bit like other schools I've been in. The, uh, this is the kitchen area. Uh, whenever you came to lunch from the classes, you always came through this door. Uh, you see back there, they had a big uh, stage back there where we put on our productions for, uh, I was in a few plays <laughs> during, uh, during grade school, so that's, that's where it all happened. Um, the kids at Abo actually got to vote on what the school mascot would be, and appropriately, and adorably, they chose to be the Abo Gophers. Yeah, we're, we're underground, just like the Gophers are, and so. <laughs> right through here is uh, our generator room to uh, keep it up and running for the people that are coming in, inhabitants or whatever, townspeople that are coming here for the fallout. It also has right over here in the corner its own water well underground. And as you can tell right here, you've got uh, doors. You've got to close that one for survival, open this one for survival, and you're shutting ventilation shafts and open ventilation shafts and trying to keep um, the bad air out of here. Scott and Thad weren't sure which room doubled as the morgue. Uh, and I think it's back by the elevator. That's what I heard. There's a little room, but it, it, I didn't ever see where it could fit, you know, a tremendous number of bodies. But this is a typical classroom. Certainly there's not any windows, there's not any sunlight. Uh, but we went upstairs two or three times a day for, um, for recreation. 
The teachers reported that they generally liked her school because the students weren't distracted by staring out the windows. And I think the students themselves were generally proud uh, of their school. But once again, this creates a huge debate uh, with many people saying that the needs of schools and the need to shelter people during a nuclear attack were not compatible. That's Kenneth Rose again, author of One Nation Underground. And he says, in fact, there was a lot of debate going on at the time about fallout shelters. The subject was virtually inescapable in the early 1960s. Every newspaper was running articles on shelters and the potential for survival. Time magazine published an article called Gun Thy Neighbor, in which they interviewed a guy who said, that if any of his neighbors tried to get into his fallout shelter during a nuclear attack, he would kill them. All across America, people are preparing, going to staggering lengths to protect their families from their greatest fears. Today you can watch shows like Doomsday Preppers on cable TV and think about what it would be like to prepare for the apocalypse. But in the 1950s and 60s, it was a brand new idea. Also, back then, it wasn't a fringe idea. I mean, the president of the United States was telling people to build these things, and the whole country was involved in the debate. On one side of the debate, you had people against shelters. Those against shelter said that uh, your uh, people who burrowed into the ground to save their own skins were no better than moles. Or gophers. Shelters would militarize America and turn the United States into a garrison state. And after the nuclear war had ended, shelters would sort of be America's pyramids, all that remained of a wasted, defunct civilization. And on the other side, people for shelters said, wait a minute, this is just a precaution, like any other. They compared fallout shelters to lifeboats. Here's a sarcastic letter that a proponent of shelters wrote to the Harvard Crimson in 1961. It has been brought to our attention that certain elements among the passengers and crew favor the installation of lifeboats on this ship. Although we share their concern, we remain unalterably opposed to any consideration of their course of action for the following reasons. The letter gets increasingly sarcastic. It demonstrates a lack of faith in our captain. The apparent security which lifeboats offer will make our navigators reckless. These proposals will distract our attention from more important things, i.e. building unsinkable ships. You will only be saved for a worse fate, inevitable death on the open seas so forth and so on. I think in this little letter, you can see some of the issues that are being debated. Like what kind of world will you emerge to if you survive a nuclear war? And whether the shelter system could somehow make our leaders more likely to engage in war? It's a very complicated calculus on this, this whole issue of whether to build a shelter or not to build a shelter. For the town of Artesia in the early 1960s, the calculation seemed easy enough. They needed a new school anyway, and the Office of Civil Defense agreed to pay the difference between building a regular school and a fallout shelter school. Artesia was near Walker Air Force Base. It's closed now, but at the time, it was the largest strategic air command base of the U.S. Air Force. It was also close to the White Sands Missile Range. These and other factors made Artesia feel particularly vulnerable to attack. 
New Mexico has always had nuclear programs going on. That's Jonna Williams. Her friend's mom is one of the people that heard me on the radio and got in touch. Jonna went to Abo Elementary in the 1960s when Cold War tensions were still really high. I do remember um, going through White Sands Missile Range. Every once in a while you see a missile going up and you're thinking, wow, how do we have 30 minutes to live or what? <laughs> you know, it's kind of a creepy feeling. Like Thad and Scott that gave me the tour of Abo, Jonna didn't know at first why her school was underground. The teachers never mentioned it, and her parents didn't tell her either. They didn't tell us anything, and don't ask real questions. We'll lie to you. <laughs> but you know how most kids have that one friend in elementary school that knows about sex? Well, Jonna had Fidelia Brennan, and she knew about nuclear war. Fidelia Brennan, I'll never forget. <laughs> She's the one who opened my eyes to that kind of, I guess, reality (laughs) or unreality. She was very intelligent. Of course, they had a fallout shelter in their backyard, so I'm sure they had already gone through the whole survivalist thing growing up. And, you know, knowing the kids in her family, it seems like they were taught things like how you could survive nuclear holocaust. And I know I had kind of a freaky feeling about that after that. Like, oh my gosh, we're all going to (laughs) die. Oh, there you go. As Jana and I are talking, an alarm starts going off. It's an emergency test alarm that the oil refinery plays every Monday at 6.30 p.m. Artesia's large oil refinery was another thing that made them feel vulnerable to attack in the 60s. Refineries are often targets during wars, especially the ones that make jet fuel, like the one in Artesia did. It's almost like a nuclear raid sound, isn't it? That's how I knew that I Love Lucy was coming on when I was a kid. When ABO was built, it got a fair amount of media attention. Dan Rather did a story on the CBS Evening News in 1962, and more than 60,000 people toured the school in its first few years. The Soviets found out about it and were critical. One Moscow newspaper criticized artisans for indoctrinating pupils to the inevitability of war. But actually, while the rest of the country's students were doing duck-and-cover drills, which was probably strange and scary for some kids, Jana doesn't ever remember having to do one at ABO. But we never did any, you know, like nuclear raid tests where you had to drop, tuck, and roll and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) We were already down there. We were safe. So... Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. This is an official civil defense film produced... Officials in the Soviet Union were putting down the U.S. for their preoccupation with this whole shelter issue. But in fact, the Soviets built a very elaborate secret shelter underneath Moscow. And of course, our fearless leaders had their own hiding places, the most elaborate one being the bunker hidden below the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia, built to house all 535 members of Congress and their staff, but not their families. It was decommissioned in 1995 and is now open for tours. Remember the speech that we heard at the beginning of this story in which Kennedy vowed to allocate millions of dollars to find places where Americans could take shelter from nuclear bombs? Well, it took place in July of 1961. To identify and mark space in existing structures, public and private, that could be used for fallout shelters in case of attack. 
In the fall of 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy asked for a status report and found that his shelter program was far behind schedule. The government hadn't been able to find all that many places where people could take shelter, and the ones they had found weren't fully stocked with supplies. By 1962, the private shelter business was also failing. But it wasn't in decline because Americans stopped being afraid of nuclear war. The Cuban Missile Crisis was arguably the most frightening moment of the Cold War. Kenneth Rose thinks Americans rejected shelters for a lot of reasons. For one, they couldn't afford them. The cost of a decent shelter was about $2,500, and that was about half of the median family income in the 1960s. And Dr. Rose also believes... Americans simply did not like the, the image of themselves cowering underground. I think it dug at American pride. We think roughly something like 200,000 shelters were built from the beginning of the Cold War to about 1965. And you could say that, well, 200,000, that's a lot of shelters. It's about one for every 900 people. But in an era when a majority of Americans actually believed that there was going to be nuclear war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, I would say that 200,000 is, is actually a small number. I will not go down under the ground Because somebody tells me that death's coming round And I will not carry myself down to die When I go to my grave my head will be high Let me die in my footsteps Before I go down under the ground There's been rumors of war as far as Abo Elementary, it thankfully never had to serve as a fallout shelter, and they got rid of their supplies back in 1989. They got rid of all the bedding and the food, the medicine, even a few body bags. But the school stayed open until 1995. When they stopped using it as a school, it wasn't because they were tired of being underground. Here's Assistant Superintendent Thad Phipps. It is a little, uh, it is a little sad after growing, <laughs> growing up in this school to see, uh, to see it not being used or to see it in this type of shape. But uh, we understand as a, as a district that uh, the cost to renovate this type of building was, was more than, than what the community was willing to, to put into it. And so we built a brand new school right on almost on top of it, just uh, slightly to the west. The new school is called Yeso Elementary. Yeso and Abo are both named after geological layers of Earth, Yeso being the layer just above Abo. It's clever. Yeso is above ground, but in the spirit of Abo Elementary, has very few windows. Now Abo Elementary is used for district storage. Oh, and one other thing. It's being used as a active shooter training facility for the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. They go through all of their scenarios and, and use it to practice for, for situations that none of us want to think would happen. But, wait, 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 what do you mean? It's active shooting. Like uh, school shootings that you, you know, have been around the nation? This has been a, a really good facility to use because it's all downstairs. There's no windows and they can do everything that they need to do and nobody, nobody sees. So twice a month, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center goes into ABO and practices for school shootings, running drills, firing at fake targets. If something ever happens, you want to be prepared. I don't think you can ever be prepared enough, but, you know, in case something does happen. 
Because if there's one thing Artesia has always been good at, it's being prepared and protecting its kids from whatever dangers they might confront. Invisible was produced this week by Katie Mingle with Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 Local Public Radio KALW in San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign Architecture in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible comes from our prepared and future-oriented listeners and from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own website or portfolio. Every time I do one of these spots, I like to highlight one of the fine people putting Squarespace to good use. And this week, you should check out Ellingson.cc. Josh Ellingson is a graphic artist from San Francisco. He recently painted a mural on a bridge in Austria, and they named the bridge after him. I want a bridge. You can see the Ellingson Bruca at Ellingson.cc. If you want to show off your work to the world, go to squarespace.com, set up your own site using their easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools, sign up for a free trial right now at squarespace.com, and if you decide to purchase, use the offer code INVISIBLE, and I will save you 10%. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. Support is also provided by Tiny Letter, email for people with something to say. My boy Maslow always has something to say. What do you guys say, Maslow? Apple will also be a good zombie shelter. What are you doing, Carver? I'm a zombie. Well, Abbo is definitely where I'm going. Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter. From the great people behind MailChimp. You also have MailChimp to thank for the existence of Radiotopia from PRX. If you like programs beautifully crafted and meticulously produced, then Radiotopia was meant for you. This week on Fugitive Waves from the Kitchen Sisters, the story of the homobile, transportation, civil rights, and glitter in the heart of San Francisco. At nighttime, when I go out, and and this is how I look, you know, fabulous and avant-garde, not a cab will take me. Fugitive Waves, just one of seven all-killer, no-filler podcasts from Radiotopia. Subscribe to them all at radiotopia.fm or search for Radiotopia in iTunes. If your company wants to support 99% Invisible and all the programs in Radiotopia and reach the smartest, most attractive, design-minded people in the world, email support at prx.org. It'll be good for you, good for us, good for everybody. If you like the stories on this program, you can get more and more and more of it at Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, but photos of ABO await at 99pi.org. Radiotopia.